We return this morning to the book of Hebrews and our series entitled, Jesus is Greater. Uh, did anybody bring their Hebrews journal? Did some of you remember? Oh, cool. Look at that. Good. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? All right, Dwayne. I'll give you two. Well, if you took one of those a few weeks ago, definitely uh, bring those back. Um, as I said, probably for all of us, again, figuring out what does it mean to gather on Sundays inside. We, I mean, praise the Lord for so many things, but really, we said it last week as we wrapped up our time in Sebastopol at the Grove. Um, so thankful we are as a church for uh, the Grove in our 12 months there, so thankful for Spring Hills in our six months there, um, but it also is good. It was 39 degrees when I got in the car this morning, so I'm glad we are inside this morning uh, as well. Uh, so we are looking at the book of Hebrews, and our series subtitle is Jesus is Greater. Now, it's been a few weeks. Last week was Reformation Sunday, and we took a little break from Hebrews to talk about the doctrine of justification, that aspect of God saving us. Uh, and we talked about our alien righteousness, this, this righteousness that's outside of us, that is imputed to us, uh, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the week before that, it was the cold, wet, windy morning, <laughs> and uh, we did not gather that Sunday, but it was the Sunday before that when we were last in Hebrews. This this book, toward the end of your New Testament, or it's also a letter uh, but it's also a sermonic letter, and that's some of the wording I used in our earliest messages. Uh, it's, it's an amazing book, letter, but it's, it's a sermon. The, the writer to the Hebrews, we don't know who he was, but he starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, exalting the Lord Jesus, the Son, and we find out a little bit later the Son is Jesus, and, and, and we are still just making our way through. And we come today to chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at verse 10. Uh, I called that message, the entirely appropriate sufferings of Jesus. He is our appropriate founder. And we just spent that whole morning on that one verse. And that one verse serves as an introduction into our passage. I'm going to read it for us in, in just a morning. But let me ask you a question. Raise your hands if you have, are you ready? Some Christmas decorations up in your home. Okay, a few of us do. Okay, raise your hand if you've had a holiday beverage from Starbucks. Okay, more of you have been to Starbucks and have enjoyed that. Raise your hand if you've had some Christmas music on. Uh, okay, a lot of you have had that. Well, that counts. Well, I know there's a whole debate. Can you start getting ready for Christmas on November 1? Or is that wrong because we still have Thanksgiving? Maybe we should do sides, you know, like the Christmas people on one side and, you know, for now and, and those that think we should wait. Um, whether or not you are decorating yet, whether or not you've had holiday beverages yet, whether or not you listen to Christmas music yet, we are going to talk about Christmas today in this passage, uh, sort of, sort of. Specifically, we're going to talk about the incarnation. That, that's a big theological word. The incarnation is the doctrine taught in scriptures that Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. We get that from several passages, uh, that, that language of incarnation, God in the flesh. And, and he the, was truly the God-man, truly God, truly human. Um, and, and again, actually, we've been talking about the incarnation ever since we've been in Hebrews, because the writer to the Hebrews talks about it right from the beginning and wants the audience to know right away that the, the Son is, in fact, God, and he came in the flesh. But, but today, there begins a shift out of 
the realm of talking about Jesus being greater than angels. That's kind of been a theme in the first chapter and a little bit into the second chapter. And now there's going to be this beginning of an identification of Jesus as uh, the, the true and greater high priest, okay? But we're also going to learn uh, that he is our brother. And so this is a rich text uh, in what theologians call Christology, the study of Christ, and we are going to do our best to unpack in, in a sermon amount of time, not in a semester-long amount of time, uh, what the text says. So if you're kind of taking notes or want to at least track, uh, and again, I apologize, nothing on the screen today. We'll, we'll get there and have some outline points for you eventually. But here we go. Today, we are going to see that the incarnation, God in the flesh, teaches us two things. Number one, that Jesus is our brother, and number two, that Jesus is an effective high priest. The incarnation teaches us that Jesus is our brother and that Jesus is an effective high priest. So if you have Hebrews open, please look with me at Hebrews 2, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. Um, I will just read 10. We commented on it a few weeks ago, and we'll focus on 11 through 18, but let me read the whole text for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, would you open your word to us today? Would, would Holy Spirit, you cause our spirits to say yes and amen? to the glory in this text of Jesus in the flesh, being our brother, being our effective high priest. May we be transformed because of this passage. For your use, for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Number one then this morning, the incarnation teaches us that Jesus is our Brother. So look with me at the first part of verse 11. The writer says, For he who sanctifies, that, that's simply to make people holy. If you have an NIV, that's the translation there. For he who sanctifies, he who makes people holy, 
and those who are sanctified, that is, who are made holy, all have one source. Now, there is so much in these opening verses of verse 11. Scholars debate all the time things. That's what scholars are supposed to do. And one of the things that has been debated is the phrase there at the end of that section of verse 11, all have one source. You might have a footnote if you have an ESV telling you that it could be translated, all are of one But that's all ambiguous, and that's why scholars debate this. Uh, The meaning has been debated ever since the first centuries of the church. And so that is why, if you have an NIV, for example, your translation says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Okay. Or if you have a CSB, uh, your translation might read, for the one who sanctifies, that's the word holy, and those who are sanctified all have one father. Or the ESV, which I use, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So is it one source? Is it one father? Is it one family? Scholars have been debating this since the first century. And uh, there you go. Um, uh, Basically, it has to do with, with, again, the ambiguity of this adjective. It can be either masculine or neuter. So you that are into grammar, that, that shapes the way you, you interpret that and take that. Most commentators, both in antiquity and modern, they tended to go with the idea of this word speaking uh, one source referring to God the Father. So if, if it is, then that you, helps you understand why the NIV says the, of the same family. But all of that ultimately doesn't change the meaning of the first part of the verse. We do all have one source, be it that we have one family connection through Jesus, our brother, be it that we have one father, which we do have through Jesus, our brother, or if we just stick with the, the word one source. The, the point, the stress is the first part of the passage and doesn't change the meaning of the first part. For he who sanctifies, he who makes holy, and those who are sanctified, who are made holy, all have one source. What, what is astounding in that is that the he who sanctifies and he who makes is referring to the Son, referring to Jesus. Now, that would have blown away the first hearers of this. They would have had no problem. They knew their Old Testaments, the Hebrew Scriptures. They would have understood God the Father as the one who makes holy and makes uh, and sanctifies. But now, we have this one who both makes and who was sanctified himself, and it is the Lord Jesus. And what we're going to learn from Hebrews many, many weeks uh, away from now, when we get into chapter 10, is that it was the spilling of Jesus' blood specifically that did that. So let me just read these verses, Hebrews 10.10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The single offering is Jesus. And then in chapter 13, verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, there's that word, the people through his own blood. Astounding. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, and it's Jesus and us, and we have one, one source, be it the father that the author has in mind, be it the family, uh, be it just literally one source. Now, what is going to happen here in the next two verses, 12 and 13, the author is going to do what he's been doing. He's been quoting the Old Testament. I've actually, I was 
I meant to go back and recount, but I think we're up to something like the 10th time now the author has pulled a quote from the Old Testament, and we're only in the the middle of chapter 2. So the author wants to ground everything he's saying in the Hebrew Scriptures. He wants his hearers to know this is something that was spoken of long ago. And so in verses 12 and 13, the author is going to use Psalm 22, verse 22, and then Isaiah 8, 17b and 18 as his support for Jesus being our brother, right? That's the whole point. That's what we're looking at. The incarnation, God in the flesh, the son coming, teaches us that the one who came, Jesus, is our brother. Now, just briefly to talk about these these references, Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. There are many that are, but this chapter in your your Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures is rich with Old Testament imagery. You might recall the words of Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. Uh, Several other points in Psalm 22 also are very clearly messianic and point to the promised one. And so it's not arbitrary that the writer here would know of that psalm, would very likely know what Jesus said from the cross, and would pull from this psalm at verse 22. One writer says this, The first 21 verses of Psalm 22, which afford graphic parallels to the events surrounding Christ's crucifixion, are a righteous man's plea for deliverance. Thus, the psalm as a whole fits well into the author of Hebrews' broader concern with Jesus' suffering of death on the cross. So he wasn't willy-nilly choosing just some random proof text. Psalm 22 was known to be a messianic psalm. And then in verse 13, he uses a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 8. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, talking about those two references, except to say uh, the Apostle Paul and Peter both quote from Isaiah 8 uh, in reference to Jesus in Romans 9.33 and 1 Peter 2.8. So again, my point is Isaiah 8 was known to be a messianic context. And so our writer here, as he's wanting to make this point, that, that the incarnation teaches that the Son, Jesus, is our brother. He goes to two places, Psalm 22, Isaiah 8, to quote these passages that, that reflect this amazing truth. The incarnation, God in the flesh, God the Son, coming as the God-man, teaches us that Jesus is our brother. In fact, he is the perfect older brother. I've been thinking a lot over the last few weeks about older brothers. Some of you know I have an older brother. And I had a, I have, he's alive. But, but when I was little uh, and we lived together, um, that's what I was about to say, I had a good older brother. I can remember one incident in particular. Uh, we had recently moved and I was at a new school and uh, there were some bullies, right? It, it doesn't change. This is unfortunately life. And uh, so... Uh, these bullies were being bullies to me, and they were a couple years older, and, and I literally was kind of scared to go back to school for, for fear of these bullies. I'll make the story short. If, if you want to know the details, it's a good one, uh, but we'll have to have coffee or something uh, to, to tell the details. So I told my brother, who at the time was a bodybuilder, like buff, muscles ripped, n- no fat on him at all, uh, and uh, 
So my brother went with me uh, the next day to the playground, and as we approached the playground, I'm not even making this part up. Literally, these guys are coming out from behind the portables and the playground structures. They were ready to do what they told me they were going to do. And as soon as they saw my brother, and he wasn't wearing his Speedo, don't worry, he wasn't, you know, showing up like that, but, but he was a big man, and I'm, you know, like in fifth grade, uh, fourth grade, uh, it's like their countenance just changed. Oh, Paul, it's cool, it's good, you know, we're, we're fine, we're good. And literally, I never had a problem with that group of people anymore. I will tell you this, this is true, I, I, I mean it, one of these bullies works at Costco, I see him every once in a while, and life is good. Uh, all these years later, like almost 35, 40 years later, I had a good older brother. I don't know if you have an older brother um, or not. And if you do, maybe you didn't have a good older brother. I, I think about um, my family and, uh, and, and my kids. And um, so I've got four kids. I've got an oldest who's a daughter. Then the old, next second oldest is, is the oldest brother. And then another daughter, then another son. And, and, and my kids are great. They're like all kids. They have their moments where they bug each other and get on each other's case like any family does. But the older siblings, they are good older siblings. And uh, I was thinking of one, one incident in particular where uh, I lost my patience at my youngest son. This is a long time ago. Um, it happens more than I like to admit, but this one incident. And my youngest son's older brother was in the room and, and he put me in my place appropriately uh, for getting and being rude to, to my youngest son. He, he was a good older brother in, in that moment. And there's, there's countless stories where the older sisters too are good older sisters and, and all of it for the younger siblings. I don't know if you've had that experience, either like I did experientially or as a parent or, or not. If, if you didn't, Jesus, to use Tim Keller language, Jesus is the true and better older brother. As great as my older brother is, as great as my son is as an older brother and my oldest daughter is as an older sister, Jesus is even better. Jesus is even better because he came in the flesh, the incarnation, part of who he is, is to be our older brother, to be that true and greater older brother, to bring us into the family of God. As, as the quote says, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. That brought me to tears this morning. The son of God who we sang about is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, even though we are lousy younger siblings. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy as an older brother is is more, is more. It's astounding. He makes us part of the family by his holiness, his sanctification, and then that holiness is credited to us. As we saw in verse 10, he saves He's going to bring with him all of us to glory. What an older brother. What an older brother. So that's the first thing the incarnation teaches us here in our text today, that Jesus is our older brother, and he's a true and better older brother. But number two, the incarnation also teaches us that Jesus is an effective high priest. And, and this is, is astounding, and this is going to be a central idea in the book of Hebrews. In fact, 
verses 17 and 18, uh, they're going to really sort of set up uh, and prepare us for what the writer is going to do from chapter 4, 14 through chapter 10. Like the whole middle section of Hebrews is all about Jesus as the true and greater and better high priest. And, and, and in fact, right here um, in verses 17 and 18, there's no fewer than eight words that are going to be repeated in, in a fuller context between chapter 4, 14, and 5, 3. So the author does this quite a bit. He'll say something, and then he's going to come back to that and expand on that. But in verses 14 to 18, we're going to try to do an overview and see that Jesus, in the incarnation, is an effective high priest. Again, let me quote this one commentator. He says, The Son had to become human because high priests are taken from among human beings. If you know your Old Testament history, if you know how that worked, we'll see that in chapter 5, verse 1. The high priests under the Old Covenant were taken from among human beings, and so the son had to be human, had to be fully human, uh, because if he was going to be a high priest, he had to be human. He had to become a high priest in order to offer the ultimate sacrifice for sins. And that's what we see here in our passage this morning. And then finally, as we'll see in verse 18, it presents a practical ramification of his suffering that he is able to help us in our temptation. So let's try to, in just a few minutes, look at some of the glory in these passages. I'm indebted to, in particular, one commentator, one New Testament scholar who I've mentioned before, Michael Kruger, on a lot of his work related to this passage. So think about a court of law. We recently had a thing come in the mail saying that one of the people in our family gets to go serve on jury duty. Everybody's favorite. How many of you like jury duty, honestly? Some of you do. How many of you don't like it? A couple of you. How many of you have never had it? Hey, look at that. Yeah. Well, someone in our family gets to serve on jury duty in the not-too-distant future. Um, Whether you've been on jury duty, whether you've maybe been in a court of law, uh, either, you know, in one side or the other, uh, generally it's unwise to represent yourself. I think we have a few lawyers in the room and they would probably agree with that. You need someone who understands the law and the way the system works who can make an effective case, someone to represent you to the judge. It's the same before God. It's the same before God. We need someone to be our 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 advocate, if you will. And as high priest, that is one of the things in ancient Israel of the, high, of the high priest. It was their job to represent the people of Israel before God. The high priest did this. And every year under the old covenant, this man would enter into the holiest part of the temple, would make offerings and sacrifices on behalf of the, on behalf of the people. But there's a couple problems in this system. First is that these sacrifices were made year after year after year. It never stopped. Just because a high priest made some sacrifices, sin didn't go away. Sin didn't go away, and and the guilt of the people didn't go away. The second problem was that these high priests, they changed hands. They came and went. Uh, One would be a high priest, and then they might die. Another would be appointed. Some were good high priests. Some weren't uh, at their job. But the men who filled this office, they were unreliable. And so what we we learn here, starting out in chapter 2, and again, it's going to come to fruition throughout this book. We need a better high priest. And again, who's that better high priest? It's it's Jesus. He is the true and greater high priest. And the incarnation teaches us that he is effective. 
So as we look at verses 14 to 18, let me now give us kind of two headings just to keep us kind of moving through. Two aspects, again, of his humanity, of the incarnation, that make him an effective high priest. The first is this. Jesus was a real human. And we've already been talking about that, but we need to restate that and restate that. And I said even a few weeks ago that in our day, when we get to conversations with people about Jesus and trying to talk to people about who he is, who he was, what he's done, most of the time we're trying to convince people that he is really God, that this, this rabbi who walked uh, the, the world 2,000 years ago wasn't just a good Jewish rabbi who had followers and turned the world upside down, right? Our, our dating system and so many other things we could talk about, but he was really God. We, we try to explain that, and people have a hard time understanding a human to be divine. Uh, for some of the earliest followers, followers, it was the opposite. They were okay with the idea of Jesus being fully God, but a, a human like us who sin, um, how, how could this human be divine and how could that work? But this is important. Jesus has to be fully human. And we see that in verse 14. It says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, so that's speaking of us, the brothers and sisters that he's not ashamed of, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. If you know the gospel according to John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and it goes on to say that he, he came. He came in the flesh. He came to the earth. Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul as well goes on to speak of this as well. It doesn't just say that Jesus had a body or that he was a man. It says very, very kind of raw language. He took on flesh and blood. He was a real human in every way. And this is, again, a key theological truth. He was 100% God, 100% man, and he had to be fully human in order to represent us as high priest. Jump to verse 16. It says uh, this, and again, we can kind of beg this with, with a question. Did Jesus set out to save angels? And the answer is no. It says in verse 16, for surely it is not angels. Remember, he's been talking about Jesus being greater than angels. It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's speaking of us, the brothers and sisters. We, by faith, are the offspring of Abraham. Jesus became flesh and blood because he is out to help, not angelic beings, but his brothers and sisters, the ones he's not ashamed of, flesh and blood. He became that kind of a high priest. Again, not like in the first century and the first recipients, they would have not understood this. They would have been thinking of these sacrifices over and over again that were made. But Jesus, as this high priest, he offers himself. It was his death that took care of our sin problem. And it says that it took care of the devil. Let's let's spend a couple minutes looking at this. Look at verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, his death, his offering of himself, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's a lot contained there. 
The writer says that the devil has the power of death. Wow, really? The scriptures would say, we might argue otherwise, that really it's God who's the one who's the giver and taker of life. And that is true. But there are ultimate causes, and God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he does ultimate things, and he allows a lot of things, and that causes us to get uncomfortable. And I've mentioned this before, but read the first few chapters of Job, and you'll see that. And I remember as a young Christian, just literally having my eyes wide open to see that Satan, the devil, could come before God the Father, and he could accuse Job before God, and God would say, basically, go ahead you can do everything but take his life. And, and, and Satan does these horrible things. He is able to affect the weather, and, and he has a lot more power than a lot of us Western Christians want to believe and want to let him have. He's not just a little red, you know, eared, tailed with a pitchfork Halloween figure. He has a lot of power. And here... The writer says he has the power of death, but in what sense? If God is the ultimate one who, who can allow Satan and people to do things within his sovereign plan, right? He, he allowed the Lord Jesus to face a bogus trial and to be arrested and to be beaten, right? People did that, but the scriptures tell us it was God who did it. So how is it that Satan has the power of death? R.C. Sproul, who's no longer alive, he once said, that it's not death that he is afraid of, but it is dying that he is afraid of. And you might understand that. For some of us, to, to be dead, and if we trust what the scriptures say, that means for the Christian to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Praise God for that. So death, R.C. didn't fear, but, but dying, the process of dying. What, what is this power that Satan has? I think, and this is one idea, for those that, that are not Christians, Satan has the power to keep them sinning, keep them tempted, keep them rejecting the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, everyone dies. Every person dies. This isn't saying that if you are in Christ, you don't die. We, we do. These bodies stop. But Satan's power lies in what he can do to keep people from the Lord Jesus. It's people that have the Lord Jesus, that though their body may quit, they will be present with the Lord. But, but Satan, if he can keep people in sin, keep them blinded from the truth, he can keep them from receiving the glorious, great salvation that the Son authors. And I think that might be one idea of what the author has in mind, that Satan has the power of death, and he can keep that in people's lives. And there are people who are afraid of dying, who are afraid of the unknown, and they do everything in this life to try to prepare themselves. And we believe in this glorious gospel that what we do is simply respond to this grace that God gives, this righteous one in our place, that alien righteousness we looked at last week, his life for ours. And and when we receive him and respond to that, he changes us. And no, we're not made perfect, but we are being sanctified. We're being made holy. And it should let us not fear death like a lot of people do. And that's a struggle for some, even some Christians. But the truth here, let me read it one more time, is this. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, speaking of Jesus, that through death, his death, 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. If you're a Christian, Satan cannot hold death over you anymore. If you sin, pull a Martin Luther out of your pocket and say, so what? So what, devil? I know one who's righteous and holy, and it's in him I trust. Okay, that is what this is telling us. That he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. For it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 15, now backing up in the text, also says this. He died, I just read that, excuse me, to to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus is a real human. He had to be a real human to make what verse 17 calls propitiation for the sins of the people. That's another big theological word. Propitiation is a very specific word, which means that Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath against sin. God is holy, perfect, and has a right to want sin dealt with, to be angry, to have wrath at sin, and to have it propitiated means that Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath. It appeases God. That's what it means to propitiate, to appease. And again, God is right to be angry, but we don't need to fear that anger. If our trust is in him, he was a real human. He was an effective high priest. His offering of himself took care of that for us. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear God's wrath because Jesus in the incarnation, real human, is an effective high priest. So that's one item, real human. But then there's one more. Jesus also experienced real suffering. And I want to be quick here, but I want this to be very, very pointed to us. If Jesus was, was only real human, um, he wouldn't be an effective high priest. He wouldn't be able to understand what we go through. But verse 17 says, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. And then it says in verse 18, he himself also suffered when tempted. We've already seen this in part. We'll see it again. This idea that Jesus understands what it is to be human and to suffer. So here's a list that one writer had, and this is good. Listen to this. Have you ever felt abandoned or lonely? Jesus can relate. Isaiah 53, 3 calls him the man of sorrows, rejected and put to death by his own people. Have you ever felt grief for losing someone you love? Jesus can relate. In John 11, we read that he wept at the death of his good friend Lazarus and the pain of Lazarus' sisters, seeing them weep. Have you ever been lied about, slandered? Jesus can relate. He was betrayed by a close friend, falsely accused by priests, ridiculed by soldiers. Have you ever had money problems? Jesus was poor. It says in Matthew 8, he had nowhere to lay his head. He He was homeless. He traveled around. Have you ever felt misunderstood by a family member? Jesus' own family thought he had lost his mind. Literally, they thought he was crazy. Mark 3, verse 21. Have you ever felt highly stressed? Jesus was so stressed in the garden on the night before he would be arrested and beaten and, and crucified, it says, that that stress caused him to sweat drops of blood. His sweat was like drops of blood. Talk about stress. 
See, we, we can't say, oh, he doesn't understand. How can God understand what I'm going through in this life? No, he does. He was a real human and he has really suffered. He understands suffering in this life. It's hard for us, though, to, to grab hold of that. Max Lucado, one of my wife's favorite authors, uh, he writes in such a down-to-earth style and he gets at this uncomfortableness that we can have with the humanity of Jesus, his real humanity and his real ability to experience things. Let me quote Max Lucado. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the streets with him and had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known he was listening to his sermons. Jesus may have had pimples, He may have been tone deaf. Thank you. I am. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure. He was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He was he, would, he felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds, burped, had body odor. He had his feelings hurt. He got tired. His head ached. To think of Jesus in a light like this as well, almost irreverent, isn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation Let's clean up the manure from around the manger. Let's wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Let's pretend that he never snored, blew his nose, or hit his thumb with a hammer. But he did experience real human suffering. And so in the incarnation, Jesus is our effective high priest. He was real human and thus could offer himself and and was... Again, because of the old law, the old covenant had to be a real human, but he also suffered and experienced pain like we do. He never gave in to temptation. We're going to come back to that later on. But he felt it. He felt what it was to be tempted. And it matters. It makes him merciful high priest. The incarnation teaches us that Jesus is our brother, and the incarnation teaches us that Jesus is our effective high priest. We need him as our older brother and we need him as our high priest. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. Uh, Did everybody get some? Okay, if if Jim Thaler is going to come around, so just raise your hand and uh, and you can grab your, your chalice. So we want to make sure everybody has that. By the way, I'm looking back there and the clock says 12.11. And I'm thinking, I've really preached a long time. It's only 11.11. That's a good thing. So hang on to this. And uh, again, if you are uh, a regular We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper the way we typically do, which is as a family. So on my instruction, we will partake of the bread. On my instruction, we will partake of the the wine, the juice. So hang on to this. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. 
The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so it's fitting this morning as we've looked at the incarnation, God in the flesh, as we've considered that the incarnation teaches us that we have this true and better older brother, as the incarnation teaches us that we have this true and better high priest, an effective high priest. He's all those things because of who he was, his, his active obedience to the Father, but then what theologians call his passive obedience, going to the cross on our behalf. So we remember that he came and was that. So let's take the side that has the bread. And let's, let's eat this and remember who he is. And then let's take the other side. And before we drink, let's remember that, that this, this God-man, he's like no other. This, this one who came to save and bring many sons and daughters to glory, he's our older brother. He's not ashamed. He's an effective high priest. And it's true, and that's for us because of his offering, because of the new covenant in his blood. Let's proclaim this together. Would you pray with me? So Lord, there's nothing in this text that tells us to do anything. This text doesn't command us to respond outwardly. There's no verbs, there's no imperatives. But God, may our hearts respond to our older brother, to our high priest. We give you praise and glory and may our response be worship, not just our words, our singing, but our life. That because you loved us, we love and because you loved us, we can follow you and we can be people that are being sanctified because you sanctified us and we can be people that love you and love others because of all of this and it's only because of all of this. Forgive us for trying to do things to earn from you. Help us live in response to all that you are and all you've done for us. And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name.